Well, Matthew 16, we're going to begin reading in verse 13 in just a moment. We're going to start a little series. I don't know how long it's going to go. We may turn our attention to the book of Philippians. I'm still praying about all these things and making a way as we think about church revitalization. Thirty years ago, thirty years ago, I think it was 1988, the membership of this church was over 350 members. Twenty years ago, the membership of this church was over 250 members. Ten years ago, the membership of this church was around 150 members. And today we are about 90 members, and we've been around that number for the last five years. Obviously, we're not trending in a positive direction. And of course, numbers aren't everything, but that statement is usually made by people who are struggling with their numbers. Numbers do matter. We want to grow as a church. We certainly want to grow spiritually as a church. We also want to grow numerically at the church. We've got all these empty seats to fill. So we must begin to think about revitalization, getting new life and vigor to this church. And I want it to become front and center in our thinking and especially in our praying about the church because our current course, the way we're trending, is towards death. So in coming sermons, I'm going to be talking about revitalization. Now when we look at the church in its current condition, we begin to ask almost automatically, and people, of course, have been asking this for years, what do we need to do different? And some people ask that question and have strong ideas about that question, how to answer that question. Some people are scared to death about that question because they don't want to change things that they might love about the church. But that question, what do we need to, be do, what do, we need to do different, uh, assumes that if we push the right buttons or get the right combination or run the right programs or uh, any, anything along those lines, that's all we need to do. We can manipulate the situation. Well, I'm completely convinced that asking that question, what do we need to do different, is not the correct initial question. We need to be asking. Well, we, we may need to ask that question down the road, but not yet. That's not the question. We're going to push that question back for later. And, and the, we may not need to do anything different. You know, that's, that's a question we don't need to even address now. Today, I want us to think about building the church. Who builds it? Who builds the church? That's the question for today, and that's where I want us to start thinking about church revitalization. Matthew 16, 13 relates, and following, relates to us an incident where Jesus was alone with his disciples. It was a break from their very busy ministry and an opportunity for him to speak to them uh, personally as a group and to query them. And we pick up the reading Matthew 16:13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, "Who do people say that the Son of Man is?" And they said, "Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets." He said to them, "But who do you say that I am?" Simon Peter replied, "You are the Christ, the Son of the living God." And Jesus answered him, 
Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. May God write his eternal truths from his word on our hearts today. Well, we are asking who builds the church, and the answer, of course, is there in verse 18, where Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build it. Hence the title of the sermon, uh, Jesus Builds His Church. And the point of the sermon, Jesus builds this church, any church, his church. Before we explore what that means, some implications from that. Let me take a few minutes and explain some details of this passage to make sure we are clear and on the same page. So Jesus is there with his disciples and he asks them, who do people say that I am? And, and there were numerous opinions out there, obviously, in the crowds. One of the prophets was the prevailing opinion. And there were different ones that were identified. John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Elijah. One of, the pro- one of the prophets was this prevailing opinion because Jesus had a very prophetic type of ministry, similar to those ones that had gone before. Well, Jesus then turns the question to the disciples. Who do you say that I am? And the you here is plural. Who do you, disciples, say that I am? He asks the group of them that question. And Peter He's want to do, speaks up for the whole group and states the truth. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's what all the disciples believed about Jesus. All of them in a group, and they were correct. Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. The word Christ is the New Testament or the Greek equivalent of the term Messiah. It means anointed one. He is, indeed, the Son of the living God. They had that right. Now, they may not have completely understood what it meant to be the Messiah, what it meant to be the Christ. They didn't know all the implications of that. But that would be cleared up for them in time. Well, Jesus then addresses Peter in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... See, God had opened Peter's eyes and the other disciples' eyes and their minds and their hearts to who Jesus is. They got it because God revealed it to them. We call this illumination. Human beings are in darkness about Jesus until God the Spirit turns on the lights spiritually. Truly knowing the Lord is a is a divine work wrought in the believer's heart by the Holy Spirit. It's a, a supernatural work. We'll get, we'll get on that in a moment. Jesus then further addresses Peter in the verse we're exploring today. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Well, there's a play on words here. The name Peter sounds like the, the Greek word for rock. Peter is a a masculine name, Petros. Petros is uh, the Greek name. The word for rock is a feminine noun, and it 
in Greek is Petra. So you are Petros, and upon this Petra I will build my church. That's how it goes in the, in the Greek. Now much has been written and argued about this verse. Uh, to what is Jesus referring by the word Petra, the word rock here? Who or what is the rock upon which Jesus is going to build his church? Well, if you're a Roman Catholic, uh, and this is what Roman Catholics teach, they say that Jesus is referring to Peter himself. He is pronouncing that Peter is the head of the church. He's the first pope. And Protestants obviously disagree with this interpretation, and I think for good reason. Peter now is certainly uh, central in the formation of the church. But he is nowhere in the scriptures considered the head of the church. Peter features prominently at uh, the beginning of the church, in the book of Acts, early chapters. He was the one who spoke out at Pentecost. He preached that sermon there when uh, you might say that the church was formed. And he was the first to go to the Gentiles with the gospel, even before the Apostle Paul was was in the picture. But he disappears from the narrative of Acts in chapter 15. There's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. That's the last time Peter's name is mentioned in Acts 15, and that's the Jerusalem Council where he speaks up for the mission to the Gentiles. But the one who is actually the kind of the head of the church, if you will, is James. James is the one who's the spokesman for the Jerusalem Council Church in Jerusalem. So Peter is nowhere considered to be the, the pope in the Bible. Uh, he is actually, just a few verses down, you'll see he's rebuked by Jesus. Says, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, in speaking to Peter. And in Galatians, we read about how Paul rebukes Peter. So he's far from infallible. He was a disciple, a godly man, obviously, and, and a pillar of the church. But he was fallible. Well, I think it's appropriate to think of the term rock here as referring to Peter, uh, as a Protestant. Uh, there's, there's several different ways that you can look at this, but I think, it's, it's, uh, I think it, he, Jesus is addressing Peter here for sure, but not as an individual. He has spoken up as a representative of the apostles. He's expressing the view that the apostles have. They all believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and, and Peter is saying that. And when Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, he is referring to Peter and the other apostles. They are the foundation of the church, and we read that in other places in Scripture. For example, Ephesians chapter 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Jesus is going to build his church, he says, and he's going to build it on the foundation of the work of the apostles. And that's exactly what he does. We read about that in Acts and the early, uh, well, book of Acts and all the letters that we see uh, there in the uh, New Testament. Jesus is going to build his church and lay that on the foundation of the work of the apostles. And their work was just to proclaim Christ. They went about pointing people to Jesus Christ, telling everybody what they had seen, what they had witnessed. 
And Jesus goes on and says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The forces of evil will not overcome the church. Death cannot destroy the church. The church will never die. Read on the front of the book. The church is one foundation. That verse says the church shall never perish. The church shall never perish. Have you ever seen a movie depicting the future where people go to church? You know, any movie you see where it depicts the future, people don't go to church. It's never figured in there. There's, I heard Derek Thomas say one time that there's, there's not a church on the Starship Enterprise. But he says that's not true. The church, will, the church will be there. The church will be there forever. The church is going to last forever. The church will never perish. Those movies are wrong. Jesus builds his church and the forces of evil nor even death can destroy it. It will never die. There's hope for us. Even though we're trending in a shrinking way, doesn't mean that we have to perish or that's inevitable. The word church here, I need to highlight this for a moment. The word church here, uh, the word Greek word means called out ones, those who have been called. And when you read this word in Greek, even if it's pagan Greek, it means either an assembly or church. So an assembly, people who have been called to a meeting, and they're, they're meeting together. The church, people who have been called by God to be his people. The church is not this building. The church is the people who have been called by God. And we are a, a one local expression of the church. We are a group of people, a smaller group of people who have been called by God to himself. So that's what the church is. That's what Jesus is building. He is calling people to himself to be part of his community, his assembly. Now, the question before us today is, how does Jesus build the church? Yes, we know Jesus builds the church, but, but how does he do that? There's many ways that we could answer that. I'm going to give you three things. The Lord builds his church supernaturally. The Lord builds his church circumstantially. And the Lord builds his church providentially. Well, first, the Lord builds his church supernaturally. Jesus is calling a people to himself to be in a relationship with him, a covenant relationship, an exclusive relationship. And his people are to be devoted to him. Marriage is a covenant relationship. We're excluding everyone else. We're coming into a relationship with the spouse, and it's an exclusive relationship. And his people are to be devoted to him, or as the Bible says, his people are to be holy. They're set apart for him. They belong to him, and, and that's reflected in the way that they live. As Jesus says in verse 17, flesh and blood cannot do this. This is not something that we just decide by, in our own flesh or in our, by our own will to do. Certainly God uses means to do this work. His people, if we're his people, we are commanded to witness and to make disciples. We sow the word, but God is the one that causes the growth. Paul affirms this in 1 Corinthians 3. 
There was an argument there in the church in Corinth. You know, some people were, you know, they were bragging about the guys that they followed. We do that in our day. We can identify with that. Some follow Tim Keller. Some follow John Piper. But in Corinth, it was Apollos or Paul, and and they argued about that. And, And Paul's making the point that they all had a different part to play, but it was God that caused the growth. He says, I planted, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So yes, we must be faithful to to plant, to sow the seed, and to water that seed, but it is God who causes the growth. Are you faithful in witnessing to Christ? Is this church faithful to proclaim Christ and Him crucified? How can we do a better job of proclaiming the gospel as individuals and as a church? How can we get more people to hear the gospel? Because when we proclaim it, that's when God works to transform people's lives. It's through the preaching of the gospel. That's the way people are saved. Now when we start thinking about what we can do to, uh, to make our church grow, often we talk about marketing ideas. You know, we say, well, we need to go and, you know, uh, put our name out there more. And that's marketing the church. And, and there is some usefulness to that people need to know that we exist people need to know what we're about but that's not evangelism evangelism is when we actually tell people about Jesus that's what we need to be doing more of getting people to hear about what Jesus has done for sinners we can tell them all about our church all day long but that's not making us grow that's not what God uses to supernaturally transform people to change their lives. How do we get people to hear the gospel? When we put that gospel out there, we're sowing the seed, and when the seed is sown and watered, God supernaturally causes it to grow. God reveals himself to people like he did to Peter and the other apostles. It was God that revealed it, that they knew who Jesus was. So the Lord builds his church supernaturally, but he does use people like us to put put the gospel out there. And we need to be faithful to do so. Well, secondly, the Lord builds his church circumstantially. And what I mean by that is that Jesus builds his church in spite of difficult circumstances. Jesus says the gates of hell is going to strive against the church. Jesus doesn't say there won't be a battle, that I'm just going to build this thing and it's just going to happen so easily. He says, no, I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell are going to fight against that, but the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church is not going to die in spite of all the difficult circumstances the church finds itself in. Now we find ourselves here at First Presbyterian Church in Biloxi in certain circumstances. I mentioned those earlier. but That's no reason for the church to die. We can never say, well, the circumstances were just too much for us. No. Christ builds his church through the circumstances. 
And we see that played out throughout the New Testament. There were many who opposed the church. There were many difficult circumstances the church faced. But the church grew and grew and grew. Now many of you know I, uh, my, my family and I went to uh, England and my job was to plant a church. And we, uh, we did that. And, and one of the great reasons that happened was because of the first family that came on board with our church plant. We moved to a town in England and, and uh, the Lord amazingly put into the community uh, a family that had just moved there previous to us and they were Presbyterians and godly people and, and uh, the, 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 the father of this, uh, how, uh, this home was uh, Stephen Johnston and Stephen was like a built-in elder for me. And he was a manager at a plant, and he worked all over the world, so he was really good with people, knew the different cultures and knew how to communicate with people. And he was a great encouragement to me because you know what he told me all the time, over and over and over again? The Lord builds his church. We, we started meeting with Stephen and his wife in a Bible study, and uh, we met together for a few months, and then the guy that, who was our mentor said, why don't y'all start meeting for worship? I mean, two families. You know, there's six of us and four, basically four or five of them. One, some of them were in college. And so you're kind of like, well, okay. So we uh, got permission to use a local school, and uh, first Sunday we, we invited everybody we knew and we had a nice little crowd that, that showed up just to show support. The Sundays after that, not so much. Uh, the Johnstons and the Horns showed up, and Stephen and I would stand on the steps of that church. We had a little sandwich board outside that said that the church meets here. And, you know, anytime someone walked by, we were just anticipating. Hopefully they, hopefully they would walk through those gates and into the church. And so often they didn't. And you know what Stephen would say to me? The Lord builds this church. And it was a reminder. It's, we just need to keep being faithful. Keep doing what we do and the Lord will build it. And he did. And then when people did start showing up, you know what Stephen would say to me? The Lord builds his church because he was doing it. So it was, it was a mantra for us. The Lord builds his church. And we had some difficult circumstances, and I won't go into all the details of, of what it's like to plant a church in Western Europe, but it was, a, it was an opportunity for God to do his super, supernatural work through our human efforts. The circumstances were against us, surviving or doing anything of, of note, but it happened. It came together, and I turned that church over to a British church planter, and now that church is multiplied. I'll tell you about that in a moment. But I want to get to my third point. The church, the Lord builds his church providentially. Providentially. Now, if we went from uh, Matthew 16 and, and traced the growth of the church uh, on through Acts and through the Pauline and Petrine letters and the others, we would see that God built his church in varied providential ways. Now when I talk about providence, what I mean, and I'll read from the catechism, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful 
preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. God is sovereign over all things. Everything is under his control. And he weaves our lives together in, in circumstances and opportunities. He's in control of it all. He knows everything. God is never surprised. And God builds his church using his people in providential circumstances. You think about the, the church in Jerusalem. You know, it had formed there in the beginning of Acts. Uh, thousands of people were joined, but they were all there in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. They weren't thinking, hey, we need to go out and be missionaries. You know what God did in his providence? He sent persecution to Jerusalem. And those people had to be driven out of Jerusalem. You know what they did when they left Jerusalem? They went out into the Judean countryside and they started sharing Jesus with people out there. And the church spread. And they were driven to Samaria and some people went there and the church spread as they proclaimed the gospel and God supernaturally changed people's lives. We saw the same thing happen in, in, in England. Strange ways that God built his church. We had a couple who lived in town and they probably went to about 10 different churches trying to find one where they felt comfortable. And they just were not having any success. Well, they went 500 miles north to the wife's mother's home and attended church with her one Sunday. And the pastor of that church knew about our work. So the pastor said, well, you should go check out this church plant. So they had to go 500 miles north to find out about our church so they could come to our church when they returned home. And that's what they did, and they became members of the church. Stephen and I and others would go and drop leaflets around town. In, in, in England, you can just drop things in people's mailboxes. It's not a federal offense like it is here. But we, uh, we dropped some leaflets in an empty house. We just went from door to door and just dropped them. And the real estate agent didn't uh, throw these things away. They, he just had stacked them up. So we had dropped a leaflet in an empty house. I don't even know that it was for sale at the time, but people eventually bought it. A year later, they bought this house, and in the pizza coupons and all the things that you get in the mail was the flyer for our church. That couple came to church a year later through a flyer that we dropped. See, God is in control of these things. We have opportunities every day to go out and make a difference in people's lives. Now, I'm not saying that everybody you meet, you automatically go and share the gospel with them, but you, you have relationships, you build relationships, you build bridges to where you can point people to Christ. You can invite them to church. You can share that, yes, I'm a Christian and, and I believe certain things and, and here's how the Lord has made a difference in my life. These are all things that we can share with people. Now, we ended up planting that church in Cheltenham God caused the growth. I left that little church, uh, got a building. Another church in town uh, decided to join the denomination. So the assistant pastor at the church where I was went and there was a second church that formed in Cheltenham, the town where we worked. Now there's a third church being planted in Oxford, which is about 40 miles away. The church that I planted, the pastor there, started a Bible study in Oxford, and now where there was no church, there are three churches, or there are about to be three churches. See, 
these are all God's circumstances that, in fact, we went to Cheltenham just because we liked the place. Nobody had told us where to go plant a church. We just drove through one time, and man, this is a nice place to live. And uh, that's where we ended up. God's providence. As we think about how does Jesus build his church, we need to look and think about the providential circumstances of our lives. We have neighbors, we have co-workers, we encounter people in the supermarket, wherever. There's all kinds of opportunities to share and point people to Christ or to befriend people. To make it more possible for the Lord to do his supernatural work, for the Lord to build his church. I hope that that will become a mantra for us, that that we remember the Lord builds his church and to be thinking with that mindset as we encounter people. How can we point them to Jesus? How can we get them to church? How can we get them involved in a, a, a study where they can learn the gospel, hear the gospel, and then the Lord can supernaturally change people's lives? That's the kind of growth we want. We want conversion growth. We want to see people who don't know the Lord come to know the Lord. And the Lord has promised to do that. Let's make ourselves available for, the, for God to work through our circumstances providentially to transform people's lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would build the church here at First Presbyterian Church, Lord. Teach us how to be more faithful to you. Lord, we, more than anything else, we need the gospel ourselves. We need to know your great love personally, to walk in that love and to just should overflow out of us if we are full of your love. And we pray that you would build us up as individuals, Lord. Help us to hear the gospel and to respond appropriately to the gospel with our lives. And Lord, this treasure that you shower upon us, the treasure of grace and mercy and forgiveness, may that message flow out from us to a lost and dying world. But most of all, Lord, I pray that everyone here would embrace that message, that we would all know your grace and mercy and forgiveness. We pray that if there is anyone who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that they would, they would cry out to you, that you would save them and forgive them and cleanse them and that they would be your child. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.